make a quick announcement. Again, uh, this Wednesday night, we're going to be doing hermeneutics um, on live stream at 7 o'clock. Um, I would love for as many people that can uh, tune in to be there. Um, it's one of the classes I took in seminary that helped me understand scripture, just understand scripture better, and then how to approach scripture. And I think you'll gain a lot out of it. And I want to start by saying <clears throat> that I miss you. Um, I think all of the elders, um, probably everyone that's connected to this body would say the same thing. It's been two months since the last time we've seen this building full on Sunday morning, and I miss that. And uh, with that said, if you would read along with me, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will cure judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Let me pray and we'll get started. There we Father God, Lord. Lord, I just pray um, for our church, Lord. I pray for the leaders um, of our church, Lord. I pray for the governor of our state, the county supervisors, mayors, Lord, the president. I pray for the state, Lord. We see in scripture clearly you are in authority and you have given authority to the state, Lord. And we are called to honor and respect that as Christians, as a church. Help us to navigate, Lord, in the situation we find ourselves in right now, Lord. Be with me as I preach today, Lord. Um, I have felt a heaviness about this sermon and next week's sermon for weeks now, Lord, knowing that at some point I would probably have to address this topic, Lord, from Scripture. I pray that I speak nothing but your words. Help me to have your heart, Lord, as a pastor. Pray that you help our congregation have the heart that you would want us to have, Lord, in this situation, that we are a witness, Lord, to our community, that we don't get caught up in the same frustration and hatred and arguments that the world has, Lord, but that we show a trust in you and your sovereignty in your goodness, Lord. Help guard our lips, Lord. Help guard what we post on social media. Just be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. The question that we have today is what should the relationship be between the church and the state? It's a question that's been on my heart for a while now and something, thankfully, um, I've been able to study pretty in-depthly. I thank Craig and Zach for preaching the last two weeks, which have given me an opportunity to dive very deep into this topic. Um, there's three questions I'd like to answer in the next two weeks. We're only going to be able to cover two of these questions this morning, but these are the three questions I'd like to, to tackle in the next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday. What does separation of church and state mean? That's the first question. What distinct institutions 
has God ordained and what are their roles? That's the second question. And the third question is, what have we learned in the past two months? In the last two months. Today we're going to tackle the first two questions. And I want to warn you, I'm probably going to go a little long today. Thankfully, you can just turn off. I wouldn't even know it. So, so the first question is this. What does separation of church and state mean? The phrase separation of church and state, probably the most well-known phrase from our founding fathers. But what's interesting is that phrase is not found in the Constitution anywhere. It's actually not found in the Declaration of Independence. It's not found in the Bill of Rights. It's not found in any of our, our founding documents to the country. Yet, it's probably the most quoted phrase from our founding fathers. I also believe it's probably the most misunderstood phrase in all of politics. There's three questions I want to answer in, in, in this topic and in, in talking about the separation of church and state is where did it come from? What does it mean? And, and what does the Bible say about the relationship between the church and state? So where does it come from, this idea? If it's not in our founding our documents, if it's not in um, the Constitution, this phrase, separation of church and state, actually came from Thomas Jefferson to a letter to a bunch of Baptists is, makes me happy. Uh, the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut. In historical context in the 17th and 18th century, Baptists were the minority. I might be hard to believe, but they were the minority denomination in America, especially in the northern states. And what happened was the local governments of the northern states and throughout the United States would show favoritism in the 17th and 18th century to many of the major denominations or the majority denominations. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson was elected president. He was the third president of the United States. And the Danbury Baptist Association wrote him because they were worried that the Constitution did not go far enough in protecting religious liberties and protecting the religious minority in particular. Jefferson wrote back um, to the Danbury Baptist Association, um, and he quoted the First Amendment, which is this, no law representing or respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and then he added this comment, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson was actually interpreting the Constitution the First Amendment saying it built a wall of separation between the church and state. And depending on what you mean by the separation of church and state, it's true. The Constitution does build a wall separating the church and state. So what did Jefferson mean when he said the separation of church and state? Well, he simply meant that there would be no established church in America. There'd be no state-sponsored church. Or put in another way, the, the state would not be allowed to run the church. Jefferson was saying in America, no denomination would get special treatment. The church would be allowed to live out its own convictions without a threat from the state interrupting it. You know, what's interesting about this is just historically, the phrase was more about protecting the church from the state than anything else. And I, I think today... Most people use it to protect the state from the influence of Christianity, which is not the intent, the original intent. The separation of church and state does not mean, does not mean a separation of religiously informed moral reasoning from public policy. It's not a separation of Christian reasoning from public policy. 
It doesn't mean I have to abandon my biblical worldview when I enter into the arena of politics. I can't. You shouldn't. Yet that's what most people think it means today. Listen, and, and if you're not a believer and you're watching, you have to understand this. Even if you're a believer and watching this, you need to understand this. A transcendent moral law from God is needed for there to be rights. Our founding fathers understood this, and it's why they approached government from a theistic biblical worldview. For us to have rights, there needs to be a law that transcends government. A law that the state is accountable to. Otherwise, all you're left with is man's law. Man's arbitrary, every-changing, often evil law. Francis Schaeffer was a voice of reason concerning this, and he was often quoted saying, if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, or I would add government, then society or government is absolute. Meaning man's law becomes absolute. There's nothing to judge it by. And I just want to be clear, that's scary. That's extremely scary. I don't care if you're a Christian or non-Christian. You need to hear this this morning. I can give you one example in our history as a country. At one time, the society and government said it was okay to, to have man as a slave just because of the color of his skin. You know how that got changed? Men like William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King Jr., who held the government accountable to a law that transcends the society and the government. A more authoritative law, a higher law, a moral law from God. Therefore, the separation of church and state, it's not, it never was, and it shouldn't be a separation of religiously informed moral reasoning, Christian reasoning from public policy. Just read the Founding Fathers, you'll see that clearly. They were all religious men. They didn't abandon their biblical worldview. Our biblical worldview should, and I would say it must, affect every aspect of our thinking and living as Christians. It's unreasonable to ask Christians to abandon their biblical worldview when it comes to public policy and law. It was never the intent of the Constitution. It was, it was not what Jefferson meant by separation of church and state. Which leads to a question I'm more interested in, a question that I think is more important. What does the Bible say about the relationship of the church and state? I believe it teaches a separation. That's where the Founding Fathers got this concept from originally. I just want to quote the Westminster or Confession of Faith. It's not because it's more authoritative than Scripture. We're going to dive into Scripture. But it comes from Scripture. It's a, it's a confession of faith. And it was, it was written well before the United States. And I just want you to see these men that came together and said, this is what Scripture says about the government and church. And, and hear what it says well before the United States. In fact, this confession influenced the United States government. Section 23.3 says this, Civil magistrates, that's the state, that's government, may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or in the least interfere in matters of faith. In other words, there needs to be a separation between the church and government. Yet, as a nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates, the government, to protect the church of the common lord without giving the preference to any denomination 
of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred uh, functions without violence or danger. In other words, there needs to be a separation of the church and state. So what does it mean biblically, separation of church and state? Well, I don't like that word separation so much. I'd rather use the word distinction. Distinction, because you can't completely separate the church and state. They are intimately connected, as we are seeing right now. Yet there should be a clear distinction between the church and state. The church is a distinct institution established by God. And listen, this is so important. The government is a distinct institution established by God. In fact, there's three distinct institutions in scriptures established by God. The family, the church, and the government. The family is the most basic. The government is the most broad. All three should obey, honor, and glorify God. All three are accountable to God. All three have particular roles and authorities spelled out in Scripture, and all three are called by God to stay within those roles and authorities and responsibilities. I actually heard a sermon on this recently, and he used an analogy, the pastor, and I really liked it. All three institutions have lanes that they're not supposed to be out of. They're called to stay in their lanes, and they get in trouble when they cross into each other's lanes, and all three cross into each other's lanes at points in the history of the church. Again, this is where the idea of the separation of church and state came from for our founding fathers. There should be a distinction between the church and the state. It means the church has particular roles ordained by God, and the state, the government, has particular roles ordained by God, and they should not interfere or do each other's roles. They should stay out of each other's lanes. And we see this in Scripture, throughout Scripture. In fact, we see it even in the Old Testament. If you would, turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. I just want to pause and just say, can you imagine? Imagine a 16-year-old president. This was the king of Israel, 16 years old. And this is not in my notes, but expect a lot from your teenagers. They, they, They can follow the Lord. They can do a lot. Want to keep going, though. 16 years old. And he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time for a king, especially in Jerusalem, probably anywhere. And that was because Uzziah was a godly king for most of his reign. In fact, look at verse 4. It says this, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all of his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek the Lord. That was unusual for a king to seek after God. Verse 5, in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord, and as long as he sought the Lord, he made, God made him prosper. God made him prosper. In verses 6 through 15, actually, you see all of his success and all of his prophes- or prospering uh, by God's hand. Skip down to verse 16. But when he was strong, again, he was strong because God had blessed him so much because he was seeking God. 
he grew proud. And where does pride lead? To his destruction. In his old age, his pride destroyed him. Uzziah, a godly king, but his life ended tragically, for he was unfaithful to the Lord. This is what he did. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, when you think about that, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, think of King David. He slept with a man's wife and had him murdered. This man burned incense in the place where you're supposed to burn incense. Well, why was it such a big deal? Verse 17. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are um, consecrated, consecrated to burn incense. Right? In other words, it's the priest's role, not the king's role, to burn incense in the temple. The king was in the wrong lane. Look at verse 18. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leopard to the day of his death. And being a leopard, lived in, uh, in a um, separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. In other words, the rest of his life, he was excluded from the temple. Because he didn't respect the role of the priests. Became prideful and took it on himself. He died a tragic death. Listen, in Israel, the king had a role. The state, the government. The priests had a role like the church, the sacred. And the roles were not to mix. They were to stay in their own lanes. But this is what's important. Both under the authority of God. This is what the Bible means by the separation of church and state. This is what our founding fathers meant by the separation of church and state. The state is accountable to God. Just like the church. R.C. Sproul writes, The need for a clear division of labor between the church and the state was the belief that, that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation. That means it emerged out of Scripture. It wasn't just a good idea. The church was called to pray for the state and be supportive of the state. The state was called to guarantee the liberty of the church and protect the church from those that would seek to destroy it. There is to be no favoritism in any particular denomination or group of believers. This is the root principle of separation of church and state. That is what the Bible and that's what our founding fathers meant by the separation of church and state. So this leads to my second question this morning. What are the distinct institutions that God has ordained and what are their roles? 
What distinct institutions has God ordained, and what are their roles? Again, I've already mentioned three institutions that God has ordained, the family, the church, and the state. Now, there's other institutions out there, and, that, and that's great, but these are the three that God has ordained and instituted. The first is the family. It's a distinct institution with particular roles and responsibilities established by God. It's the most basic institution. It's the building block of human society, and that's why the attack on the family is really just an attack on society itself. Without strong families, society will fall apart, and we're seeing it, right? All around us. I mean, the culture was falling apart before this crisis hit, but this crisis has made it more obvious society is falling apart around us. The family is foundational. And it was established in the beginning. Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Listen, families are foundational to society, and marriage is foundational to families. Just a side note. You want to make a difference? You want to be political? You want to change the direction our society is going? Start with your marriage. Work on your marriage. Work on the foundation to society. A husband and a wife. A man and a woman. Most important relationship in all of society. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with families. Build societies with families. Family is the building block of society. It's also the most, or it's, it's also responsible for educating children. The family is responsible for educating children. Deuteronomy 6.4, we all know this, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Most important commandment in scripture. That's what Jesus said. Verse 7, the very next verse. You shall teach them, it's God's command, to love God with all your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, every chance you get, you should point your kids to God. You should teach them about God. The family should be where children learn about God. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. In other words, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The family's role is to nurture, educate, and discipline children, to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a family's responsibility, not the church, not the state. Parents, that's your responsibility. Educate. That means you get to choose how your child will be educated, and you will be held responsible to that choice. Nourish. That's your responsibility to nourish your children. It's your role and responsibility, and you will be held accountable to God, not the church, not the state. It's a side note. It's why we do children's ministry and student ministry the way we do here at Country Oak. We want to come alongside you, not replace you. I hope you've heard that. At some point, come alongside you, not replace you. There should be a separation 
I like the word distinction because you can't separate these two things. There should be a distinction between church and family. You are your children's primary, primary spiritual educator, not the church. The church helps, not replaces. I mean, just think about it. Like kids and teens, they spend maybe, and this is probably a lot, two to three hours a week at church. That's it. You know, on average, I looked this up, a teenager spends 20 hours watching TV a week. Two to three hours versus 20 hours. Which one's going to win on that one? Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 7 again. You, parents, shall teach them, that's God's law, a biblical worldview, diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That's more than two to three hours. It's your responsibility. The church is called to come alongside you and help, and we want to do that. We want to do that. But the family is a distinct institution. The church is a distinct institution with particular roles and responsibilities established by God. The church is called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It's called to reach the nations. Acts 1, 8. It's called to teach sound doctrine from Scripture. Hebrews 5, 12. It's called to rebuke false teachers and heresy. Titus 1, 9. It's called to protect the purity of the gospel. Well, all of Galatians, but Galatians 1, 8. It's called to exercise church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18. It's called to love one another and serve one another, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. It's called to administrate the sacraments or the ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Listen, the church has roles and responsibilities established by God and will be held accountable to God. But I want you to hear what Ephesians 6 10 through 12 says, and we're going to get there in Ephesians eventually, but Ephesians 6, 10 says this, finally, right, remember this is a letter to the church at Ephesus, and in a sense a letter to all churches, it's a letter to us, finally, be strong in the Lord, and the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, we are at war as a church, but not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. We are not called to pick up a sword, a physical sword. We're called to call, pick up the gospel, the sword as in the Bible, to proclaim it boldly. We are not called to use physical force that's outside of our lane as a church. In fact, Matthew 26, verse 49 says this, and he, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Of course, this is when Jesus is getting betrayed by Judas. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And of course, that's Peter who would do something like that. Listen to what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In other words, it's not the role of the church to pick up the sword, Peter. We don't use physical force 
We're not political rebels. Do you hear that? There's plenty of people that want us to be. They want us just to pick up political agendas. That's not what we're called to do. Listen to what Jesus says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Just take a second and think about that. In the Old Testament, one angel killed, I think it was 195,000 people. 12 legions of angels. We quickly forget who really is in charge. Get caught up in politics. We forget that God is in control. God is sovereign, not the state. Newsom is not in charge. Jesus is. He's been given all authority. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is a distinct institution established by God and the government. The government is a distinct institution with particular roles and responsibilities established by God and is accountable to God. What is the role of the government? We'll turn back to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. There's three main purposes of government found in Romans 13. And there's other side purposes that come off of these, but I just want to tackle the main ones this morning. The first pers- uh, purpose is this, to restrain evil. To restrain evil. Look at verse 3. Romans 13, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And, and the implication there is the state is a terror to bad, to evil. The word terror in Greek is phobos, which we get the word phobia from fear. The state strikes fear into the evil heart. The state, in other words, restrains man's evil heart. This is God's common grace. And and for all of us that are critical of the state, and I am talking to myself here, the state is a gift to us. Even corrupt governments restrain evil to some extent. Many people, just think about this, many people, evil, spiritually dead people, many people don't steal, murder, and rape Not out of obedience, but out of fear of being caught. You know what? I think that number is a lot higher than we we would like to think. I think the heart is a lot more evil than we we pretend it is. The reason people don't is because they're afraid of the government. It's God's common grace to restrain man's evil heart. Let me just give you an example of this. Have you ever driven down the highway and passed an empty police car? Why do police do this? It's not to pull people over for speeding. It's to strike fear into speeders. You ever wondered why the police announced sobriety checkpoints the day before doing it? They really wanted to catch people. They wouldn't announce it. They would just surprise people, which they do sometimes. But sometimes they announce it to strike fear in people that would otherwise drink and drive. It's why they announce how many people are on patrol on holiday weekends. In fact, I live next door to a police officer. I don't know him, but I see his police car on the driveway. I haven't met him yet. And I love that. 
right? Just the presence of a police car on the driveway deters crime. Just the sight brings fear into wrongdoers. It restrains evil of people that might otherwise break into my house and steal something. It's a gift from God. Second purpose of the state is to protect and support the good. To protect and support the good. Romans 13 verse 3. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. The word servant there in Greek is dikonos. Does that sound familiar? It's the word we get deacon from. Minister. Have you ever thought of your governing officials as ministers? They are. Look at verse 4 again. He is a servant. He is God's servant for your good. For your good. In other words, it's completely appropriate for Christians to look at the government for protection and support. The government is there for our good as a servant of God. In fact, Paul did this with a corrupt government in Acts 25. Acts 25, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. If then... I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death. In other words, if I'm a criminal, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to escape it. But if there is nothing to their charge against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul appealed to the highest court of an evil, of an evil corrupt government, Caesar, for his safety from the Jews. Paul was asking the Roman government for protection from evildoers. As a side note, this is why we report crimes as a a church. We report crimes. We don't try to address crimes in-house. Because it's outside the church's authority. It's outside of our lane. The church gets in trouble when it tries to do that. It's the state's role to protect and support the good and innocent. Again, another side note, and this is important. This is why we as a church have been trying to obey the government in this crisis. Public safety is in their lane. It's their authority, their role. Hey, you may disagree, and I'll be honest, I disagree with a lot of things that are going on right now. You may be frustrated, but it's in their lane. And we're called to honor and respect that. And I would be very careful before using the word persecution. The church and or Christians haven't been singled out yet. We haven't been targeted. It's been a generic call for safety. It may be unreasonable. It may even be unconstitutional. It may be from evil motives. And listen, I want to be clear. Our governing authorities will answer to God one day. But we as a church should be careful to use the word persecution because it's coming. And I think it's coming soon. I think it may be coming within this pandemic. Other states have seen it already. Churches getting targeted and singled out. We should be careful when we use that word persecution. The third purpose of government is to punish wrongdoers. Romans 13, 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid. 
for he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword, again, represents force. For he, it says this, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The state, not the church, the state has been given authority by God to use force. Capital punishment, prison, fines, that's how our state punishes wrongdoers. Listen, the power of the sword represents the right of the state to use force to make its citizens comply with the law. This is why God arms the officers of the state. Again, the state has been given this authority, not the church. Seeing a black eye in the church that keeps coming back and haunting us from the... Um, from the mid-century or the medieval times and um, of the church picking up the sword. It's the state's responsibility. It's the state's authority, and they will answer to God. Therefore, the family, the church, and the state, all three have roles, all three have responsibilities, and all three have authorities, and all three should stay within their lanes and all, because all three are going to be accountable to God in how they use their authority. Which leads to a very important question. And this is a question we as leadership, and I know the congregation, because I have talking to many of you and have got your emails and text messages. When should I, as a Christian, disobey the government? Well, the an simple answer is this. When the government specifically and unnecessarily targets Christians, if there is persecutions, by commanding us to do something that God forbids or forbidding us to do something that God has commanded because our highest authority is God, not the government. We're going to talk more about this next week. I haven't tackled that yet. Next week we'll talk more about how we respond and when should we respond in civil disobedience. Next week, I want to answer this question. What have we learned in the past two months? There's been a lot of thinking and praying and wrestling with Scripture on the elder board and, and just in my own study. And I want to talk to the church about what we have learned in the past two months from Scripture. But as of now, I do want to ask the church to, to act. Calling the church to action. Calling the church to fasting and prayer. From what I can tell, even meeting in small groups right now, according to our state, would be civil disobedience. It's not clear. We've been trying to get um, instructions from our county and from our state, and it's just, it's unclear. But from what we can read and honestly say, even meeting in, in person in small groups would be an act of civil disobedience. Things at first when this virus came were a little bit clearer, I believe. Right? We needed to obey the government because they were in their lane, public safety, and we didn't know how bad this virus was. And I want to be honest, I don't think anyone knows. Everything's so political, it's hard to figure out what the truth is. Knowing in the back of my mind when this first started that at some point we would be violating Hebrews 10 as a church and as Christians. Right? The church is called to meet together. 
Acts 2, the church met together daily, and then they met together on the Lord's Day, and they prayed even, even in, in a large group at the temple and, and heard the teaching of God, Scripture. The church is, in Greek, is ekklesia, which means assembly, the gathering. It's what we do, we gather. It's been two months since the last time we've gathered together. I mean, 30 years of Country Oaks, we've missed one Sunday up to this virus. And just to be honest, I, I'm struggling within my own heart. I'm wrestling, and I think every elder is too, wrestling with Romans 13, which is a clear call to obey the government, and Hebrews 10.25, which says, do not neglect, neglect meeting together. I know many of you are discouraged. I've talked with you because we're not meeting together as a church. So here's the question we're wrestling with. When do we disobey the government to obey Hebrews 10.25? Let me just say this. For you that have been calling us to meet for some time, I, I meet you at the grocery store and you ask me when we're meeting. Let me just say this. Civil disobedience should never be an easy, quick decision. It should be a painful decision. It should be soaked in prayer, fasting, wisdom, and patience, even tears, and there has been tears shedded on this. Not because we're afraid of the consequences, and I just want to be clear on that. We are not afraid of the consequences. They can come and arrest me. I'll brag to my grandkids about being arrested for preaching the gospel. Painful decisions because of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are so clear. We are not political rebels. We are called to do our best to live at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18, that's the context of Romans 13, as we'll see next week. I know many of you know this, and it's put pressure on the churches. I think good pressure. It's made us dig into scripture a lot more. That May 31st, thousands of churches are opening their doors in California, whether the state permits it or not. Threatening civil disobedience. Appealing to the Constitution and to scripture. And I, and I want to be clear, I've watched these pastors talk. They don't want to be civil disobedient. They're asking the state to, to work with them. I don't see a heart, at least the pastors I've listened to, a heart of rebellion, a desire to meet together again as a church, a desire to encourage those that are discouraged, a desire to be faithful to Hebrews 10. And listen, we're tempted to join this campaign. But I want to be clear with our church. We, elders, will not lead our church into civil disobedience unless Every elder is moved by the Holy Spirit and convinced by Scripture that otherwise would be to disobey God. We move in unanimity. I can never say that word. I did again. Which means we will not move forward unless we all agree, all agree as an elder board that the Spirit has put on it on all of our hearts and we see it clearly in Scripture. So here are the things I'm asking the church to do. I'm calling the church to action this week. I'm asking the body 
to do three things. The first one is this, to continue to meet online this week. I know that is discouraging to hear. If you heard, heard Craig say it this, this morning, you might have been discouraged this year, and I hate saying it. But please, purposely love each other this week. Encourage each other this week. Be energetic this week in your Zoom meetings. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4, 4. That's a command. Be thankful to God this week that we're not getting thrown in the lion's den. That we're not being burned as human candles on Nero's lawn. The context where 1 Peter 2 was written. Let's reflect on that and be thankful. The second thing I'm asking the church to do, respect and love one another. This is not a time to argue. Your Facebook arguments don't do any good. It's a time to pray. There's an article Craig talked about. It's actually on the web page right now. If you go to countryoaks.org, the home page, if you go down to sermon links, there's two links I'd like you to look at. And the first one is called Church, don't let the coronavirus divide you. Listen, keep unity. Love one another. Respect each other. People are watching us, even on social media. This is a gospel issue. Jesus said they will know us by our love. Don't engage in worthless arguments. If you have to, get rid of your Facebook. I'm not joking. Please, you can watch online without a Facebook account. I've got rid of my Facebook a long time ago, partly because I engage in arguments way too much. I don't want that temptation. The third thing I'm asking our church to do this week is to pray. Pray this week daily, please. Pray for your governors by name. I pray that God softens all of our hearts, including mine, to our governors our state governor, our county supervisors. Pray by name that God would work on their hearts. Pray for salvation. Pray for the elders, please. I know you are. I, I know there's so many that are praying for us. Pray that God would lead us. I'm asking for a church-wide fast in prayer. Fast Tuesday and Thursday doesn't mean you have to fast all day, every meal, maybe just a meal. In fact, if you don't know much about fasting, I would ask you to look at the YouTube video. There's a link, again, under Sermon Links. There's a YouTube video that's six minutes long. It talks about fasting. Um, if you're just confused by fasting, don't fast, just pray. We've, we haven't taught about that as a church. Um, and so if there's confusion there, I'd love to talk about it uh, with you on the side. Um, but just pray. Ask God to make clear how and when we should reopen the church. Ask God to move in our governing officials' hearts to see the church as essential. To see the church as the bride of Christ who they are accountable to. Thursday is our next planned elders meeting. Every elder said that they would leave work if they had to to do an earlier meeting for some reason. But Thursday is our next planned elder meeting from 4 to 6. I would ask you pray during that time. Please pray for us. 
pray for the church body that we would represent Christ well. Christ and God, I mean, they're, they're sovereign. They're in control. There's no fear. We just want to do what's right. So pray. That's the action we're going to take this week. And that's appropriate, right? Before we'd ever consider civil disobedience, which I don't know how close we are to that. We better spend a lot of time in prayer. So that's what I'm asking. I would encourage you to join Wednesday um, for the hermeneutics class, interpreting scripture class. Maybe help keep your minds off all the political nonsense that's out there. Um, and pray for the sermon that's coming up next week. It'll be the second part of this sermon series, I guess, of the church and the state. And we'll talk about the appropriate time for civil disobedience next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray that all of our hearts, Lord, everyone that's listening right now, even if people that aren't listening that are part of Country Oaks, I pray that all of our hearts is just just a, a desire to be obedient to you, Lord. Discourage, encourage, Lord. No matter what it is, Lord, I just pray that we have a desire to be obedient to you. I pray that we see those passages that you have commanded us so clearly to obey the government. I pray that those are weighty passages. I know we as Americans, it's just in our DNA to rebel. Especially as conservative Americans. It's not what you called Christians to do. You called us to do our best to live at peace. To do our best to support and encourage and love our state and our governors. I know we're frustrated, Lord, many of us. Help us to take that, that frustrated and just submit it to you, frustration and submit to you, Lord, and just, and just to live love and obedience, Lord. I also understand that you have called us to meet together and not to neglect that, Lord. And that it's important that the church, it's its name, is to gather and to worship corporately. I thank you for the technology, Lord, that we're using right now. That there is a sense of gathering even if we're not physically together, Lord, but at some point we have to be physically together. Help us to be patient, Lord, but at the same time hold that command with some weight, Lord, knowing that you have told us to do this. God, help us to balance these two things, and I just pray that you give us, through the Spirit, just this, a clear understanding of what we should do next, Lord. Be with us as a church. Be with us as an elder board, Lord. I pray that we are good witnesses, Lord, more than anything else. Any decision we make, Lord, we know reflects you. Help us to consider that, Lord. I pray for our church. I pray that we truly do just spend this week in prayer, Lord, and, and seeking your guidance in your son's name. Amen.